this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Sunday night we're uh, studying all the way through the Bible, but we've jumped over into Matthew and then we'll go back to Jeremiah, as I mentioned last week. And we're taking a section out of, we'll look to study chapters 4 and then some distance in chapter 5 tonight. We'll have the Lord's Supper and we'll want to allow plenty of time for that. And uh, so pulling something out of that larger passage this morning, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave, get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked right to the passage we're studying. And you can turn right to it. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, that Bible is a gift from the Lord to you today. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, that is Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this amazing Sermon on the Mount and this amazing section of it called the Beatitudes. And we pray that this would not be uh, just words of a sermon or just to uh, sit and listen or to stand and speak, but we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to experience the beauty of your wisdom and truth that is found in these verses. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we continue our worship now in the study of your word and just continuing in communion with you and with your voice and our relationship with you as we do so. And we ask these things of you, Father, knowing that you are eager to answer such a prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When I look at this section of the Sermon on the Mount and this section of Scripture, there is a phrase that always um, comes up in my mind when I go to read it. And I look at this particular section known as the Beatitudes as the recipe for a blessed life. And so, moms, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little recipe exchange today. forgot to tell you to bring yours. I just brought mine. But it's a recipe for a blessed life. It's not only true, of course, for moms, but it's true, of course, for uh, everyone. And uh, I think it's important when I say everyone here talking about Christians in in this sense. We um, the Sermon on the Mount is written to disciples, 
It's written to Christians, and that's what's spoken of there in verse 1. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and uh, when he was seated, Jesus uh, was seated. His disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So this is a sermon to Christians. If you sit here this morning... What I want you to know, what you're about to hear, if you're not, you're sitting here this morning, I'm getting all tangled up here. If you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, what I want you to know as we go through this is is the Lord isn't saying, now, here's some kind of a life that I'm laying out for you that you have to live up to in your own strength, and if you can do it, then things will turn out pretty good for you. Uh, Where the sermon begins for you today, the recipe for a blessed life begins for you today, is for you today to look to God and confess your sin to him and then put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and then you become one of Jesus' disciples. So that's where it starts for you. This life that he describes here is a life that is only available to Christians because it is a life that is ours because of what the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. I want you to notice in this recipe for a blessed life that God desires that each of us as Christians would know a blessed life. He wants everyone to know a blessed life because he wants everyone to be a Christian. But he wants every single person to enjoy a blessed life. Jesus repeats the same word, blessed, nine times in these uh, ten uh, verses here in his uh, Sermon on the Mount. So he just says, blessed, 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 blessed. That's how I got through math in elementary school, uh, using both fingers. But he repeats that word nine times, not because he couldn't have said it just once and then uh, spoke in kind of a sentence structure that allowed everything to follow to be associated with it. But by design, he repeats the word over and over again to reinforce the idea that he wants us to live a blessed life. The word blessed as it's used here, it means blessed, but it can also be translated just as easily Oh, how happy. That's the life that God wants every Christian to experience. A blessed life, an oh, how happy life. He wants to bless us. Now, one of the things that's a challenge for us when we talk about blessings in the United States of America as Christians is because the culture that we live in is so materialistic, that almost always when we hear about God wanting to bless us, we immediately think of some material thing. We have to uh, fight off that tendency. So when we hear, and sometimes the televangelists reinforce this kind of thing, we hear about the fact that God wants to bless us, and immediately it translates into some kind of a material form in my life, and I think, all right, I want him to bless me. I need a better house, I need a little better car, and I need a better job than the one that I have. And by the way, I wouldn't mind a million bucks. And so when we talk about blessings in in our own minds, even as Christians, it can gravitate immediately to 
what even we think as Christians is the highest form of blessing in life, and that is some material thing I don't have, or some material thing that is better than the material thing that I already own. The problem is, is that those things are blessings in their own way, but material things come and go in life. And they just do. And a lot of times these things come and go in life completely outside of our uh, control. We didn't uh, cause the economy to crash in 2007 or individually we weren't, weren't capable of it or 2008. And yet how many people wiped out so many things? They come and go outside of, of our control. And then on a much smaller level, the same thing uh, happens uh, as uh, as well. And so these things come, they go, and the fact of the matter is we could have every material thing that we could ever dream of in life and still feel anything but blessed in life. You can read about this all of the time in newspapers or magazines or biographies or autobiographies, people who own half the world, so to speak, and they're absolutely miserable. They would not consider their their lives to be blessed at all. When Jesus thinks of blessing us, he thinks of building attitudes into our lives that allow us then to properly navigate uh, all of life around us to navigate it in a blessed way, to navigate life all around us in, 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 with attitudes that put us in a right relationship with God, with our fellow man, with all of creation, attitudes that put us in a proper relationship with ourself. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes, And I've always liked the observation. You could probably kill me related to the Greek or the whatever, whatever, whatever you want to do related to it. Those of you who are brainiacs on it, but it works for me and uh, don't ruin it for me. But I've always liked the observation that the Beatitudes are the B-attitudes. And that is the attitudes that should be in my life as a Christian. And I think that's a very good reminder as we read this for the rest of our lives. This is a recipe for blessing, a blessed life, and that blessing is found in the attitudes that are a part of my life. Now let's look at the recipe uh, briefly itself, the nine ingredients that make up this recipe for a blessed life. He says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, True happiness is found in being poor in spirit. And what he's talking about here, Jesus, is poor in spirit is to be humble rather than proud. And that is to be my attitude toward uh, myself, is to, to clothe myself in humility rather than to be proud. The Greek word for poor refers to a person who is beggar poor. Now, every culture in the world uh, has its own definitions of what is poverty, what is living above poverty, what is living below poverty, and so much of it hinges upon, you know, the standard of living of the country as a whole. So sometimes we can think that we're living in poverty if we're living paycheck to paycheck. This is a poverty that's greater than that. The poverty that's spoken of here in this 
particular verse, it, again, it means to be beggar poor. I think about in Acts chapter 3, where that man was brought by his friends, lame in his feet, a beggar. Every morning they would lift him up out of his bed where he was staying. They would then deliver him to the beautiful gate at the temple in Jerusalem, put him down there before the gate, and then he would beg from everybody who would be walking into that beautiful gate throughout the rest of the day in the hopes that of getting enough money to then eat for for that day in order to survive through that day and then to live to do it again the next day. Being beggar poor is to be dependent upon the grace and the generosity of others in order to survive. And it is a picture of how each and every one of us as Christians came into the kingdom of God. We had nothing, zero, not a penny to offer concerning our salvation. We were complete, we were dependent completely upon God in order to be saved. So we come into the kingdom of God with poverty of spirit. The real key to a blessed life is to not only come into the kingdom of God that way, but then to remain that humble after we've been saved. Ah, that's the greater catch to all of it. And how can we know that we have lost that kind of humility in our life? There's a lot of ways. But one way is if I begin to feel that I am superior to other people for reasons that I owe completely to God. That's ugly. That's an ugly pride. Where I feel that I am something better than other people by virtue of his salvation, by virtue of his grace, by virtue of his blessings, by virtue of how he picked me up and out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon the rock, he cleaned me up, he changed my life, he made me into a new creation. And when I, when I do that, it's an indication where I look at myself as being superior to people on the basis of what God has done in my life and what he's brought into my life. It's always an indication that I owe everything that I am and everything that I have to God and that he's the only reason that I'm living the quality of life that I am. Now, the interesting thing about this walking in humility is it's not only a blessing for other people. We're going to read lots of these Beatitudes. We look and say, how is this a blessing for me? I think that walking in humility is a blessing for everybody else. Well, it is a blessing for everybody else. But it's also a blessing uh, for us. In we think about the amount of pain. You just think about it individually in your own life. Think about the amount of pain and conflict, pride brings into our lives. And the word proud in the New Testament, it carries the idea, a great definition for it is to see myself above, to see myself as better than other people, to see myself above other people. There is no happiness or blessing in being proud. And the reason is, is because to live a life of pride is to live a very, very high-maintenance life. 
Because if I see myself as superior to other people, then I have to constantly feel the pressure then to prove that to them and to myself, which is exhausting because it's not really true. None of us is intrinsically better than another person. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, and he said, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And so to walk in pride means that I'm always having to prove my superiority all day, all night, in every environment. And it results in this miserable, competitive, combative life because I've always got to prove my superiority in pride, always at the expense of someone else. And, you know, people just tend to notice that. And they tend to resent that. The humble life is a completely freeing life. There is no self-imposed thing to live up to. There's nothing to prove. How much trouble have you gotten into in life by being humble? How many fights, how many conflicts, how many destroyed relationships... How many, uh, you know, conflicts at work or at school or in the neighborhood or in the marriage occurs in our life out of this insistence upon being humble in those relationships? It doesn't happen. And you know why there are no problems that come into our life by virtue of being humble? It's because it's the way to live. It is the way to live. And then notice the associated promise For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In living this way, we experience a little taste of heaven, this side of heaven. Because heaven is not going to be a proud place. Heaven is going to be a humble place for all of us who are going to be there and just giving God all of the glory and the praise and the worship that he is due. No pride in heaven. Now notice that second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, true happiness is found in being one who mourns. And the word mourn is a very strong word in the Greek. It doesn't mean that, I, you know, I woke up and I'm a little bit of a funk, or I woke up and I feel a little sense of melancholy in my life. The word mourn here describes a mourning that you can't keep secret. This is something that hits you, some kind of news, some kind of event occurs in life where when it occurs, you can't hide the fact that, wow, this has really walloped me and put me in a state of mourning. It's the kind of uh, word that is used to express what we feel when someone we deeply love in life dies. Uh, That's one of the greatest losses a person can ever experience, and we experience a tremendous mourning in our lives, one that's impossible for us to hide. So he says, blessed are those who mourn. And here you have the recognition by Jesus that to be a Christian in this world means that we're going to experience a lot of mourning. And indeed, we're going to experience more mourning than non-Christians do. Because we face all of the causes for mourning that a non-Christian faces. 
We face all of the same death of of loved ones as they do, uh, the same health problems, the same challenges raising children, the same job losses, the same uncertainty of the world that is all around us. That is something that's unique to everybody in in the human condition in uh, the world. But this morning is talking about a morning that we uniquely face as Christians. Mourning over our own sin. Mourning over the terrible price that the world is paying on an individual level, on an international level, for its sin. What Christian doesn't have somebody in our lives where people are self-destructing? It's a day-by-day suicide that they're committing. They will not turn from their sin to God. They are destroying themselves by degrees. And we look at how needless it is, how heartbreaking it is. It breaks our heart and we mourn over it. It's the morning that we feel over the sin-filled condition of the world and, and the, also of the world's treatment of God and, and its persecution of God's people. So here's the big question related to mourning and the blessing of mourning. And that is, how in the world is mourning a blessing? Because we mourn over what we care about. And we mourn over who we care about. We mourn simply because we care. If we didn't care about anyone, we wouldn't mourn about anyone. If we didn't care about anything, we wouldn't mourn over anything. We mourn because we care in life. And it reveals that we haven't safely isolated ourselves from sinners and from the world. But it means that we're staying engaged in life, we're staying engaged as Christians in people's lives, we're staying engaged in our little God-chosen place in the Great Commission as salt and light. And because we are, we are walking in tune with the heart of God, and the heart of God is broken continually as He is engaged in the world uh, as uh, well, and we're going to experience the very same thing. An unbiblical separation from the world, monasticism in all of its forms. It isn't just Roman Catholics who engage in monasticism. Uh, Protestants can do the same thing I- as well. An unbiblical separation from the world, monasticism in all of its forms. It's very safe. It's a safe place to live in many respects. It can protect us from knowing what we wouldn't otherwise know about. It protects us from a lot of relationships that are risky, and we know that they have high potential for one day breaking our hearts. But the problem is, is no life to live. There's no life to be found there, like the life that God has called us to and wants us to be engaged in. Sometimes people talk about, oh, the world is getting so bad and so terrible. Wouldn't it be great if we had a Christian country, all Christians in that country, a Christian island? I would no more want to be on that island than to be the man in the moon. Or the President of the United States or somebody else holding some other crazy position in the world. We are made 
filled with the Holy Spirit, we are made for the messiness of this world. We're made for it. We would go crazy. We would cannibalize ourselves within two weeks. We're made to be in the thick of all of the messiness of this world, all of the messiness of its sin and its brokenness and the relationships and and the hardship of all of it because God is in the thick of it. God is in the mix of it. And so often that attempt to protect ourselves from mourning would take us out of what life is intended to be, what makes life what it is. And and this is an exciting life to be in the thick of all of it. And if I separate myself and say the world is becoming this, there's too much that can break my heart, these relationships aren't worth it because they're going to break my heart, I'm going to just set myself off until I've got this tiny little place in life that I'm living. To do that is to allow the world to define the boundaries of my life and in turn then to define my influence rather than allowing God to define my influence. And we end up in this little, tiny, small place in life. And Jesus did not allow the potential for tremendous heartbreak in his life, in this world, to drive him into some corner, and neither must we. And the blessing to those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And the word comforted means to be drawn near. God will draw us near as a result. And when we face that, no matter how much sorrow we face in this life, the thing that keeps us from succumbing to the temptation of then just isolating ourselves in a self-protective manner is that the Lord comes in and he meets with us in our brokenness and in our heart that is mourning with an even greater supply of his comfort that he lavishes out upon us. Notice third, blessed are the meek. True happiness is found in being one who is meek. And the word meek, a great way to uh, explain it is just to kind of phonetically uh, sound it out. Meek. <laughs> so it really speaks. It works for me. I'm sorry it didn't work for you. We'll, we'll keep working at this. And um, uh, But it wasn't meant as a joke, really. I mean, it's worth it, worth considering. But it speaks literally of gentleness. And it speaks of being gentle and patient under provocation. Blessed are the meek. In other words, walking in meekness means that if a fleshly or a carnal conflict occurs in my life with another person, it will never be because we initiated it. Now look at the culture we live in, how aggressive the culture is becoming. Gentleness is out of favor. Look at how violent the culture is getting. Look at the road rage. Look at all you have to do is just drive a car and go, wow, this is crazy. I never, I never drive anymore without praying first. This is nutty out there. People, everybody thinks they're the blue angels. You go into a supermarket or into, you know, some, uh, uh, taco shop or whatever, and you look around the room and you realize these are the people that are driving those cars out there. 
they're no smarter than me or better reflexes than me or what and 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 the whole thing but not just in the driving everywhere it's so aggressive and anytime you want you know i mean they Somebody will send you a link of some new group of people. Everything's on film now, right? So the first thing, a fight breaks out. Where's my camera? Where's my phone? I'm going to film this. Somebody's dying right here, but I'm getting it on. Nobody's going to help. We've got ten different versions of of the film. Everything's being filmed. So you want to see a fight in a McDonald's? You want to see a fight in a parking lot over a parking space? You want to see a fight over a flat-screen TV in a store? You want to see fights? The culture's become that. It's a very, very aggressive, violent culture, and it's becoming more and more so. Uh, as as the weeks and the days and the months are uh, are are uh, going on, it's interesting now that in even in driving now, every four way stop uh, becomes a challenge, an opportunity for someone to get ahead of the other someone. It's just like okay, or it's the, the I mean, you talk about a Pharisee. Okay, who stopped first, and when did the wheel? Whose last wheel? And I saw the chrome on the cap and it stopped and then you, you know you both come to the stop and the person on the right is supposed to have the right of way but nobody knows these laws anymore and so you come out and they come out and then and then you get across in a sense of victory related to the whole thing meekness comes into those situations and it's just a picture of all of life really and meekness in those situations it just gives way it gives way it says to the other person hurry on Hell ain't half full. I'm, no, you don't go, you don't really go there. You can't go there. That's a little, I mean, you think these things sometimes, but that's a little shy of what's being taught here. But you just give way. You just give way. Some of you in this room, you never give way. It's not because I've watched you drive. You don't give way. I mean, you get, you get to the door of the store first. You get to the car shop the, in the line. You get to the post tote. You get, everything in life is a competition for you. You don't give way anywhere in life. And it's, it's just, it, the culture can produce it. Personality can produce it. And you can push and shove and win in every situation right down to the traffic lights and the parking stalls. But it's a miserable way to live. And the toll that it takes on us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, we have no idea the price that's being paid. And Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. But to live with it, have a different attitude toward the aggressiveness of the culture, the provocations of life, and to give way. For what reason? Not only for our own benefit, but that as we do that, people will see a different kind of kingdom in action. And so you give way on a given situation, and you can think in your mind. Here's a better thing to think in your mind. You have just seen a witness to the reality of the kingdom of God. Please, be my guest. I like a short story that um, was in the Reader's Digest some years ago about a man who took a friend with him to buy a newspaper at the corner newspaper stand. And as they approached the newspaper stand, the newspaper attendant growled, What do you want? And the man answered politely, Today's newspaper, please. 
And he gave the attendant his money, and the attendant thrust the paper at him and took the money and without a word turned away. And thank you, said the customer. And there was no reply. And as they walked away, the man's friend said, does he always act like that? And his friend said, he has for about the last 10 years. And the friend asked, have you always treated him like you just did? And he said, oh, I have for about the last 10 years. And the friend shook his head in disbelief. He said, I don't understand. And the man who bought the newspaper explained, I'm not going to let that man determine how I act. And it's easy how much the culture, if we take that down into the kind of the microcosm of our life, how much it is a reaction to what other people are doing rather than meekness being strength under control and me determining what my reaction is going to be in these situations in life. And then out of that strength, I am going to give way. I am going to represent meekness in the situation. Jesus never reacted to provocation. And they tried to provoke him continually. He always maintained control of himself so that he could then say to us and to the whole world, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, that is, meek and lowly in heart, And then here it is, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is to live the life of Christ. And we do so knowing that meekness is not weakness, but that ultimately it's going to prevail over the entire earth one day. The promise, the meek shall inherit the earth. And any loss that we might incur within our life by operating in this way is more than overcome and and compensated for by the quality of the peacefulness of our life. But then the Lord speaks of the fact that we can then face these things in life, operate out of meekness, knowing that one day in the age to come, the whole earth will be ours. Notice fourth in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so uh, happiness, true happiness is found in being one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. In the Greek, when it talks about hunger and thirst, it's talking about really being hungry, where people say, I'm famished, I'm starving to death. And not just saying it, but they really are. Or when we're thirsty, we say, I'm dying of thirst. That's the, that's the Greek of this. So he talks about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst in this way for this thing called righteousness, for doing right and being right with God. That is to be our attitude in life, a strong desire to live a holy life and to live a Christ-like life. Not with one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God, not being casual about sin, not being lukewarm concerning holiness, but hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You say, well, what kind of a blessing is that? And, And what makes it a blessing? Because as the Bible teaches, the other option in life is transgression, it's sin. And the Bible declares that the way of the transgressor is hard. And it is. And sin is a burden in life, not righteousness. 
Righteousness is liberating. Righteousness is free. It is sin that makes life miserable. It is sin and bondage to sin that's like a yoke put around, a millstone put around a person's neck that they're trying to carry uh, through life. And here we have the attitude that never loses sight of the fact and the child of the Christian that this is an incredible privilege to be able to live this Christian life. I have not ever knowingly, and I know for a fact I haven't in years in this room, I never say, you better, you this, you that, in terms of the Christian life, you have to obey. We do in light of the, what the Word of God has to say. But I never want to present, and I try never to, and I don't think that I do, present obedience to God without a sense of privilege related to it. I know what sin is. I know what it is to live apart from Christ. I know what it is to destroy my own life with sin, to ruin every relationship in my life, or at least to damage and mar the relationships in my life. And I never look and say, ah, now that I hunger and thirst for righteousness, this has done some terrible thing within my life. It is sin that, that comes in, and, and it is the, the great bondage. It is the great destructive thing in life. And so here again is the attitude that never loses sight of the fact that it is an incredible privilege to live this Christian life, to live a, a righteous life. It isn't that we have to, it is that we get to. I think about, in terms of blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, think about it as a Christian here. Think about what a massive amount of pain and regret you have been spared of as a Christian for the simple reason that the Holy Spirit has produced an attitude in your heart of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That hunger and thirst has steered you away from so much regret and, and, and so much uh, to be sorry for uh, at the other uh, side of it. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful blessing to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he tells us why, not only because of all of the sin and regret that it steers us away from, but also, he says, the promise, they shall be filled. God promises to satisfy that person, and he will be faithful to give us the uh, righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. Every one of us in this room as a Christian has the relationship with God that we want. He will, he will take this anywhere we want to, this relationship, this side of heaven. We have the relationship with God that we hunger for. And God gives this wonderful promise. You hunger and thirst after righteousness, I will meet you there. And I will give you the life that you're longing for in this life. And then, of course, perfectly so in the life to come. Notice 5th and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. True happiness is found in being merciful. And this speaks of our attitude toward other people. Being merciful toward people. The word mercy means not giving people 
what they deserve. The word grace takes it a step further, giving people what they don't deserve. But he's talking about mercy here. Mercy is to live life in such a way that I do not give people what they deserve. And you think, again, as we can with so many of these Beatitudes, think to ourselves, well, wait a second, I thought this was about blessing me. Seems like everybody else is getting blessed by this new me. Well, everybody else is getting blessed. That's the idea of it as well. But there's a great blessing in each of our lives for walking in uh, mercy. Giving people what they deserve in life. If that's where I want to live, I've now got a new full-time job. In the fallenness of this world... That will take up all of my, not only my own, the time, it'll take up my mental reserves, my emotional reserves. I, it, it will demand its pound of flesh out of me, giving people what they deserve. And if you're determined to do it, and, and you may be that kind of a Christian here today, that's why the, that's the beautiful thing about these, these beatitudes is every one of them hits us in areas where we're strong in and we're weak in. And we look at it and say, man, I am missing out on crazy blessings related to that beatitude, and I want that to change. And so if you sit here today and just between you and the Holy Spirit, and you're determined. I'm not going to live a merciful life. I'm going to, it's going to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's what they're going to get from me. Then you won't, and then you're not going to have time for anything else in life, and you're going to end up with a very miserable, frustrating, angry, and bitter uh, life. It's a terrible, terrible way to live. And instead, our attitude toward others is to be, I choose to be merciful in this situation. And sometimes it just comes with, you get older, and I think it comes a little bit on things. But the idea is getting older in the Lord, as he just is always working these things in a greater measure uh, in, in our lives, where I just say, I choose to be merciful in this situation. I'm not going to give them what they deserve. What good will that do in the situation here? It's happened. It's what? They didn't mean it or they did, but they'll learn and, and, and all and to extend that kind of mercy. And as we do it, it just feels right in our spirit. And the reason that it does is because it's to be like Jesus who lived the most blessed life in history. And he said the promise here is that they shall obtain mercy. And it's the truth. A person who is known for extending mercy to other people, giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving them room to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes, etc., then when the time comes, and the time always comes, when we then need mercy from them, they'll be quick to extend it to us. And not only concerning human beings toward us, where they've received that mercy from us, now extend it readily to us. How wonderful is that as a relationship? But then God notices that we're trying to be merciful to other people. And then when we fail and we come to him in need of mercy, then he pours that mercy, that grace, that forgiveness out uh, upon uh, our lives. Notice 6 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. True happiness is found in being pure or in purity. And this beatitude emphasizes the 
um, importance of purity, not just outwardly, but in the heart and deep inside in our thoughts, our motives, our attitudes. To uh, it, the word hypocrisy, as it's used in the in the Bible, it means to wear a mask. And a hypocrite, uh, hypocrite was the word that was used in the ancient world for an actor, a stage actor. And they would have a happy face, and then they would have a sad face, and they would do their roles, and it was acting. And uh, and and so you could carry on this role outwardly. You've got the happy face, you've got the sad face. You're going through the role, and who you are inside can be completely disconnected from the person that you're portraying. Well, hypocrisy in life is when I present myself as one thing outwardly, but I'm something entirely different inside. There's a massive disconnect. Those two things are not integrated. And so here he says we're not only to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to live a life that is outwardly righteous and holy, but our inside, our innards, our attitudes, our motives, and so forth, are to then be in line with what we are portraying ourselves to be uh, outwardly. And if there's a disconnect between those two things, I give the appearance of being pure outwardly, but I'm not pure inwardly, requires a lot of acting. And acting is a lot of work, by the way. It takes a lot of pretense, and it makes life very, very complicated, and it's a very, very draining way to live. You take the closer the distance between how I present myself outwardly and then what I am inwardly, the more stable I am as a person, the more uncomplicated my life is, the greater the distance between how I portray myself outwardly and then what I am inwardly, the more unstable my life is, the more complicated my life becomes because then I have to remember who did I when I did this act over here who did I do that for and then over in this uh, particular place and so and life gets super super complicated I have to remember okay what lie did I tell this person and then uh, and story did I tell them and now when I see them again I got to stick to that story even though it's not the truth but then this person knows the truth over here and I got to juggle all of this kind of complication in life. A holy life is a blessed life. There's no complications. There's no hiding. We just get to be our little selves in it. And it's a wonderful, simple way to live. The promise that's associated with it is they shall see uh, God. And Jesus taught in John chapter 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them It's he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And then here it is. I will love him and manifest myself to him. When you got all that disconnect going on inside, one thing on the outside, another thing on the inside, and all that is such a full-time job to keep track of that and all of that, nobody has time to hear from God. Nobody has time to hear a still, small voice. He could get on a megaphone and shout, and he can't get through to that kind of a life. And it robs me of his revelation. It robs me of intimacy with God. And so the blessing of purity, they shall see God. Impure hearts always dim our vision of God. Notice in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. And this is uh, the peace 
this is the person whose influence upon a situation that they become a part of is an influence for peace. They actively choose and think to themselves, this is a situation in conflict and in a volatile situation. I am going to choose to actively intervene for peace as opposed to coming in and saying, all right, I'm going to be like a can of gasoline or a, uh, or a case of dynamite and blow the whole thing up. So it's the difference between being a contentious person, a divisive person, and being a person who has a concern for peace. And it doesn't mean that this person lives under the motto of, uh, you know, uh, peace at any price or peace through compromising God's word. That's clear from the previous Beatitudes. But they actively work to get people to make things right with God and then to make things right with one another. Have you ever regretted being an influence for peace in a volatile situation? We just don't regret it. And then if the whole thing blows up, despite our best efforts, we walk away from it and we say, I tried. My um, legacy related to that situation was, as disastrous as it turned out, everybody knows I tried as hard as I could to bring peace to that situation. Well, you can live with that. And then how often in a situation that's volatile, if we come into that and now we're bringing contention and fighting and carnality and all of these other kinds of things, I mean, that's where all of the regret is found. And we look and say, I wish I never heard of that problem. I wish I never got involved. I can't believe the damage that I did to people, the damage that I did to the situation. And it ends up being a a lifestyle of regret. Blessed are the peacemakers, and the promise is that they shall be called the sons of God. Because as we act as peacemakers, people will see, wow, that's not something that comes from this world. That's the son or the daughter of another father. And they recognize that our heavenly father is behind uh, all of it. Blessed are those, verse 10, who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes. And this speaks of being persecuted for doing what is right in God's eyes. So how, how can persecution be a part of a, a blessed life? True happiness is found in standing for what is righteous, even when it results in persecution. So how can that be? It is the blessing of a clear conscience before God and man. The blessing of being able to put my head down on a pillow at the end of the day and know I am right with God and everything that I did today was good for my fellow man even though they don't appreciate it yet. And that clear conscience, that clean conscience, is a tremendous blessing in life. And so, very, very blessed. Again, being right and doing right is its own reward and the promise associated with it, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And in persecuting us, 
the world when they do that. It's simply an acknowledgement. They are not a part of us. They are not a part of our kingdom. We do not recognize or like who this person is. And the more evil the world becomes, the greater a badge of honor that is for the child of God. And then Jesus closes there in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And here's the persecution of, of the tongue. False accusations being made against us. Of course it hurts. But again, here is the same blessing that's found in the previous one of being persecuted for righteousness sake. That yes, they're slanderingly, yes, they're taking my name and putting it through the dirt. All of it's false. They say that it's one thing, but, but the real reason they're doing this to my reputation is because I'm a Christian and they hate Christ and they hate me for it. But still, there is the blessing at the end of the day of being able to put my head on the pillow and knowing whatever they're saying out there. I know what God thinks about me. And I know what people who have their heads screwed on straight think about me as well. I have a clean conscience in all of it. And so the blessing of all of that. And the promise is, great is your reward in heaven. And thus we're to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, knowing that God takes note of all of it. And he will one day reward that when we see him face to face. And so here it is. We have Jesus' recipe for a blessed life. And I look at it. I mean, you look at it. It's right there. Anybody can mix it up and do your life with it, you know. You didn't, I mean, you don't even think about a recipe in the Bible. Say, hey, this is a great recipe book. Can I show you something? And they say, I'm always looking for a good recipe. But look at the recipes for the blessed life that come out of man and come from the world. And they keep telling us the same thing, that the blessed life is found by going in the exact opposite direction of what Jesus has spoken of here. And look at the casualties that those recipes are producing in men and women and now children in the country that we live in. And then God comes in and he comes in with a recipe that is just going in the exact opposite direction. And he doesn't apologize for it. He just speaks it boldly. But look at the quality of life that each one produces. And when we've gone through just a few minutes of looking at these particular blessings and you look at it and you go, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right, yeah, that really is the way to live. And it's so opposite to the way that the world operates that we realize only the maker could know us that well. Only the one who has created us could know us so well as to know where true blessing is found in life. And so this is the greatest life that a person uh, can live. And the greatest recipe for blessing and joy and happiness in life that can be found in the whole wide world. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what good does a recipe do you on the pages of a recipe book? You've got to get the ingredients and mix it up and then eat it, Right? They're going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they'd love to pray with you to then become a Christian this morning and confessing your sin and asking for forgiveness. 
And then the Holy Spirit will take you by the hand. This is not a list of something, okay, now, what are the nine things that i got to do and i got to do it in my own effort? It doesn't work. The Holy Spirit will take you by the hand and he will walk you into this life. And he will, it won't be because you're any smarter or any more alert than you are any other day, but you will hit that parking spot at the Vintage Fair Mall at the same time that the other person is, and every other time you would have operated this way, and the Holy Spirit says, let's rethink that for a moment. And it wasn't because you did it. It's because the Holy Spirit will lead you into the fullness of the beauty of this life. And it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving and for us as Christians. I love this passage because it always blesses my heart. It refreshes me because one day I'm doing pretty good over here and then I'm losing sight of this over here. And it keeps me sharp on all of these kind of things. And then sometimes we can settle as Christians into a life where we say, you know, that's all the blessing I want. I don't want any more of a Christian life than the one that I have. And then it takes the Holy Spirit to again take us by the hand and say, no, no, this is a great life, and I want to take you deep into this life. And then to realize, as you're driving home, tomorrow at school, tomorrow at work, tomorrow wherever, that the Holy Spirit will remind you of some aspect of this because he's trying to take you into a greater blessing than even you want, but he wants it for you. Very supernatural. Very wonderful. Let's stand and pray. Only you could know these things, Lord. The world discovers them accidentally, haphazardly, and then adds all of their wisdom and nonsense to it as to sink it once again. And we thank you, thank you for the simplicity and the clarity of what you have spoken here. And, Lord, we thank you for the life that we have that has unfolded as a result of you leading us into these attitudes in life. And we give you complete permission. Yes, we ask you, Lord, we beseech you to take us even further into the blessedness of the life that you, Jesus, have purchased for us and that you describe here. We look forward to experiencing it in the coming minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.